Well, a few years back, the Rolling Stone magazine released their take on the most powerful and influential songs of all time. And the song that they chose to sit atop that list actually has a pretty interesting backstory. You see, it was originally written and performed by a soul artist by the name of Otis Redding in 1965. He performed it, he put it out, and it didn't really get a whole lot of traction, and so he passed it off to a different artist. And he gave her the ability to put a little bit of her own spin and flair onto it. He handed it over to the queen of soul herself, Aretha Franklin. And as a result, there are now seven letters that stand above the rest in the music industry. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Otis Redding was asked, hey, why did you hand over this song to someone else? And he simply replied, I believed in its lyrics. And it didn't matter if it was me or someone else, I just knew they had to get out there. At some point after the fame of this song, someone asked Aretha, hey, did you know that this was going to be so big and so powerful? And she said, absolutely not. She said, all I knew is that I believed in what I was singing, and I believed that every single woman and person, for that matter, could resonate to the lyrics of that song. Belief is a very powerful thing in life, is it not? If I were to ask you this morning, what do you believe most? What do you believe most fundamentally about life itself? What might you say? Now, if you've raised kids or whatever, you probably have the belief that, hey, you don't need to teach them dumb stuff. They're going to figure it out on themselves, right? You might have the belief of, you know, that maybe it's you find truth from within. Maybe you're wrestling with the belief of, of where does meaning or purpose or life originally come from. We are sold belief in a lot of different ways in life, too. Certain uh, uh, programs or sports teams always try to sell you on belief. This year, it's going to be the year, all right? We, we've got the new coach. We've got the new branding. This year's going to, you just got to believe. You're sold belief in certain companies. Well, if you just invest with us, believe that, man, the payout is just going to be astronomical. Believe, believe, believe. Now, as believers, as followers of Jesus, belief is foundational. The terms believer, Christian, disciple, follower, they're all kind of synonymous, if you will. They all kind of mean the same thing. It's a term that we use, and it's something that is pivotal in our faith. Now, the idea of a believer first appears in Genesis chapter 15. So early on in Scripture, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God is talking to this man named Abram, and it says this. In Genesis chapter 15, it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, Abram is receiving from God his plan. He said, I have a plan to redeem the world, every single person in it. You just have to believe that I am going to do it through you. And it says he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we begin to see as we walk with God that they begin to intertwine, that there is a belief and a need for the righteousness that only God can provide. You see, the ultimate belief in life, if you were to take Scripture's word for it, is that God is holy and good and we are not. And so then it comes down to, do you believe that God created a way, that he blazed a trail, made a bridge, so that what separates us from him could be restored, so that we could be declared righteous, that we could stand in God's presence eternally. Now, in the Old Testament, the way that belief kind of fleshed itself out was through the sacrificial system. 
And basically, here's what would happen, is there was all these kind of rules, these ways in which you would live life, and if you messed up, which you would, you would then have a debt to pay, some type of payment, and so you would have to go to the temple, and you would bring a sacrifice with you that would in some ways pay the price for that debt towards God. You would hand that sacrifice off to the priest. The priest would say, thank you very much. Probably not that, but you know, he would say, so thank you for your sacrifice, and then he would take it behind this curtain, and he would atone for you in front of God. It was all done out of a belief, though. The belief that God would look gracefully upon you as he looked wrathfully upon that sacrifice. And on the day of atonement, once a year, in which all of the sins were blotted out for anyone who believed God, they would provide this sacrifice on the Holy of Holies behind the second veil of the temple, and the sky would go dark because that was God's way of saying, I am receiving this sacrifice. I am receiving what God has called us to do. And so God would then take it from them. But the thing is, is this form of belief, this practice, wasn't supposed to last forever. That this form of sacrifice isn't supposed to just continue, continue, and continue. It couldn't last, it shouldn't last, and so for hundreds of years, the ancient Israelite people would receive words from prophets. They would receive things that gave a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice. Prophecies like this, Isaiah chapter 53 would say things like this to give them a hint of what is to come. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verses five and six go on. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. It continues. We all like are like sheep. We have gone astray. Each of us had turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you believe that God has created a way so that your transgressions, your death, so that you can be made right righteous with God? And for hundreds of years, there was this proclamation, he's coming. The ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate substitute, the ultimate sacrifice for you to be righteous, if you believe, is on his way. And that's where I believe we pick up today, where we get to pick up steam this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is kind of going to be, we're going to start there, we'll pop around a little bit, but John chapter 14 will be kind of our main starting point for today. If you're taking notes, you can follow those along with me, but in John chapter 14, we're going to see how Jesus has declared that there is a belief far greater than yourself out there, that there is a belief that far exceeds what you have to offer, and that's that God's love for you has been so magnified that he's been working behind the scenes in order for you to believe and have eternal life. John chapter 14, starting in verse 28, is the words of Jesus. He says, you heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, For the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. Come now, let us leave, Jesus says. 
It's interesting. Jesus kind of says, hey, I've got to go, and then I'm going to come back. Don't worry about it. Now, he's not saying I'm running down to the store. You need to pick you up some Slim Jims and perhaps a Slurpee. I'll be right back. I'll promise not to drink too much of it on the way. No, he's talking about that he has to depart this life. He has to willingly give his life on the cross as a ransom for many in, in order to be that sacrifice, to go into the grave and raise three days later. I am leaving this life, but don't worry, I am coming back. So that if you listen, if you know, if you realize, you may believe. Jesus is saying, you have been offered the chance to trust and believe in the repentance of your sin. You shall not perish, but have eternal life. But whenever Jesus talks about belief, it's super important for us to get this. When Jesus talks to the crowds, when he talks to his disciples, when he talks and it's written down, belief always has this definition. This is what belief, when Jesus talks about belief, means. Is that in order to believe, you have to put your trust and faith in with, and this is the important part, with the implications that actions will follow. Whenever Jesus talks about the word belief, it's not just an intellectual belief. It's not just a cognitive belief, but rather that there is a faith, there is a trust, and there is a hope that actions will follow. Our daughter is uh, three years old, and she is in princess mode. Okay? Everything is princesses, pink, unicorns. She's got Crocs that are princesses. She's got fuzzy boots that are unicorns. I mean, everything is pink, princesses, and unicorns. And recently, one of our friends, their daughter kind of outgrew all of her costumes, and so, so we kind of got these hand-me-downs. And I don't know if you know how it works with little girls, um, that, that they believe that they are the princess once the dress goes on. And so, so Avery, she'll get up in the morning, and I'll be like, oh, good morning, sweetie, good morning, princess, and she'll say, dad. I'm not a princess yet. And I would say, oh, fine, your choice, not mine. Like, you know, I was going to just roll out the red carpet for you, but that's your call. But then she recently uh, got a Tangled dress, so, so uh, Rapunzel from the movie Tangled. And she'll put on this dress, and if you've seen Tangled, one of the interesting things is she carries around a frying pan because that's like her weapon of self-defense. And so our daughter is three. She walks around the house with a frying pan, hitting her brother, hitting the couch, putting holes uh, all over the place. So if you know a good handyman, we got a lot of drywall patching to do in our house. You see, there is this fundamental belief that when she puts on a dress, she becomes that princess. I haven't had the heart to tell her that's not how it works. She just goes with it. There's a fundamental belief. As soon as she puts on that dress... She transforms into that princess and begins to act like them. So much so, if you say, Avery, Avery, when she's got the dress on, she won't answer you. Oh, I'm sorry, Princess Rapunzel, Princess Elsa. She never wants to be Merida, who's like my favorite princess, because she's just like bows and arrows and all that type of stuff. But you get the idea. It's because genuine belief spurs action. When you genuinely believe in something, it should spur more than just your head, but your heart as well. That genuine belief leads to action. And Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And from here, he goes into the Olivet Discourse, and he talks about the Holy Spirit coming. So he sets it up. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back so that you may believe. But if you believe, by the way, there's this thing, the Holy Spirit. My Spirit's going to come with you. It's going to be your guide, your helper. Your advocate is going to come to help you what? So you can just know. No, the Spirit is coming so that you may believe and live out that action. And from here is where the story that all of us are probably familiar with begins to pick up. 
Jesus is then arrested. He's betrayed by one of his closest friends for 30 pieces of silver. A betrayal kiss on the guard. He's taken before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says, well, the rules of Passover say I get to release one prisoner. And so he comes up with this good idea. We've got Jesus who didn't really do anything, just claimed to be the son of God, and I kind of think he's right. And we've got this dude named Barabbas. And Barabbas was a thug. He was an insurrectionist. He was a zealot. And so I'm going to put him out there, and we'll just, you know, that will be my way of getting out from under this. And so he says, okay, so who do you people want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they shout, give us Barabbas. And he's like, oh, these people big mad. So he releases Barabbas. Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. They whip him 39 times. They place a crown of thorns on his head. They wrap him in a purple robe signifying royalty. On his cross there was a sign that read, here is the king of the Jews. And he hangs there for six hours. And the point of crucifixion was not to kill you by piercing you or blood loss. It was a death by suffocation. For six hours in agony and pain, he could not breathe. For six hours, his lungs began to cave in on themselves. For six hours, he hung there. And as he's literally dying because he cannot breathe, he musters those three words. It is finished. And this isn't an it is finished as like, okay, I can be done with this. This isn't an it is finished like, okay, finally we got this over. It is a declaring of victory. It is finished. The plan of God that started back with Abram, that if you believe that there will be a sacrifice to take your place, it is finished. It has been completed. And they take Jesus' lifeless body, and as they do, the sky got dark. The temple veil was torn. As they began to wrap it in linen cloth to place him in a tomb, he doesn't wink at him. Just kidding. BRB. They place the body in that tomb and they roll a giant boulder in front. Place two soldiers outside. We don't want this thing to get out of control. I mean, what is going to happen if people actually believe that this guy is going to raise from the dead? In the glimmer of hope that once was, the belief that perhaps existed up to that point begins to fade because Friday ends and Saturday comes and nothing happens. There's no angels that come down from heaven and be like, all right, let's rock and roll. God, who do you want us to go after? Just point them out and boom, they're ours. Nothing happens. Life seems to go on as if it always has. Saturday comes and goes, but Sunday morning comes. And we learn about this woman by the name of Mary, and she gets to the tomb Sunday morning. Now, we don't know why she's going outside of probably to mourn, to cry, or the loss of her friend and her savior. And she gets there, and as she turns around the corner, just imagine seeing that rock, that boulder rolled away. She walks in, she kind of does one of those, like, oh, look, but she kind of peers in there, but like, oh, he ain't in there. But she freaks out, she don't know what to do. So she books it, she runs back, and she gets all the Peter and John, all the disciples. You know, guys, you guys don't understand. Mary, what's wrong? Okay, so I was going down there. Mary, what's wrong? Mary, just calm down. I went there. And Mary, calm take it. What's going on? He's not in there. Someone stole his body, and they take off, and they run. 
And so they're getting there and they're booking it. They got to see this for themselves because there's no way. This has never been pulled off in the history of mankind. Who in their right mind could call their death and pull it off? There's got to be some other explanation than that he rose from the grave. John says this, if you were to skip over a few chapters to chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. It says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. This is John's way of saying, I'm a little bit faster than Peter. He's kind of slow afoot. He went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to raise from the dead. But he saw and he believed. He ain't in there. We don't know other than perhaps he did it. Guys, he pulled it off. Spoiler alert, Jesus is alive. Okay, we all know this. Imagine. And then over the next couple weeks, Jesus will appear to his disciples and he will prove it to them. Yeah, that was actually me who died. You can touch right here. Yeah, that was actually me wrapped in that cloth. Let me show you why. He will prove it to him that he, in fact, died, was placed in that tomb, and came to life. And his first words to his disciples, this kind of secondary teaching, if you will, he says, peace be with you. And this isn't peace as like, you're a little stressed out, Mary, let's calm you down. This isn't peace like, okay, there's a lot of wind going on. You live in the Midwest. It's that not spring, not summertime yet, right? Let's calm the wind. It's not that kind of peace. It's a peace that represents the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is with you because you have believed. You saw and you believed. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. God has been working this whole time behind the scenes, preparing their belief for service in the kingdom of God. And this entire time, perhaps God has been doing the same thing in your life. Perhaps up until this moment, God has been working behind the scenes in ways that you might not even understand. Ways that you might not even know so that you may believe. Or perhaps if you do, that God is continuing to reveal his goodness, his glory, his grace, his majesty, so that you may live out that belief. And we say, well, Eric, it was easy for them to believe. They were there. They, just, they got to touch the hands. They got to hear them. They got to see them. Man, if I was back then, I would believe too. No one probably didn't believe in Jesus who could see him with their own eyes. Now, the truth of the matter is there has always been people who did not believe or they would distort that belief in Jesus. There are four main groups throughout Jesus' time who wanted to distort what true belief in God looked like. There's a group called the Sadducees. And they believed that the point of God, the point of following after Jesus, as we would call it, was to establish a political authority and kingdom. That God's going to come on down, he's going to literally sit on the throne on this earth, and we will rule with him. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, it is the meek who inherit the earth. There was the Essenes, and what they believed is that the point of following God was to detract yourself from culture. So much so they literally hold themselves up in the sides of the mountains. 
Well, we just got to cut everything off because they're leading us astray and we, they, you know, we just got to get out of here. But Jesus was often saying, you are salt and light. You need to be light in a dark place. You are called to be in the world, just not of the world. The Pharisees, one of Jesus' most popular opponents, if you will, believed that by their works, by their might, that they could receive a righteousness of their own. And God would often say to them, Jesus would say to them, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. The Sikarim, the Zealots, the Barabbases, well, God, you're a God of wrath, and so you're going to take everything out that breaks your heart, and you're going to, so we're just going to get ahead of you in this game. And God would say to them, no, 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 pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy as yourself. Turn the other cheek. There's always been distortions of belief, have there not? Distortions of our belief today might look a little bit different. Well, Eric, I believe in science, and science and God don't really go hand in hand. Because when you actually pull back a lot of the pages of science, you realize, man, there is something happening that oftentimes cannot be defined. Science will tell you everything that originates has to have a source. Stephen Hawking is on record of saying that if the Big Bang was off by one one millionth of a second, let me say that again, one one millionth of a second, everything would have resorted back in itself. Sounds like someone knows what they're doing up there. Well, Eric, I believe in philosophy, that there is a goodness and a rightness to the world. And I don't really know how God fits into that. I can get on board with that. There is a goodness. There is a rightness. There is a justice to the world in which we live in. But how do you know if your moral law, if you will, is actually true? What if what is right for you is wrong for me? Then it's just relative. So I believe, yeah, there definitely ought to be philosophically a moral law, but that also means there's a moral law giver to compare it to. Psychology would tell you today, well, you just got to find truth within yourself. Look deep within. Find what makes you tick. Learn your Enneagram number, your disc, your your Myers-Briggs, whatever it is. Find what makes you tick. But what if what makes you tick isn't actually good? It might feel that way, but it isn't. My point is this, is that there always has been, there always is, and there always will be distortions to belief, especially belief in Jesus. So what does it mean? What does it take to truly believe in the resurrected Jesus? Three things with my time left this morning. Number one, to believe in the resurrected Jesus is belief that our sin needs to be redeemed. That there's no point in believing in the what of the resurrection if you don't first understand the why. There's no point in believing that Jesus rose from the grave if we don't first understand why he died in the first place. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This rightness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
Translation, we're all kind of a wreck. Show of hands, how many of you would say you're a little bit of a wreck in life? Yeah? Show of hands, how many of you would say the person sitting next to you is most definitely a wreck of life? Okay, now we're being honest. I'll play ball with you. Let me just say, I am definitely a wreck of a person. And that's what scripture tells us. According to the data out there in life, I should not be standing here today. According to what the world or psychology says, I should not be standing in front of you today. My father passed away when I was a young boy from cancer. My mom had some stuff that she dealt with kind of as a result. I never wanted to spend a whole lot of time at home. I didn't grow up in church. You get the picture. You can start to kind of piece together. The data says I should be a wreck of a person. The data says I should be lost in my brokenness, my feelings, not knowing the difference between up and down. But what the data doesn't account for is the goodness of God. What the data doesn't account for is God is constantly working behind your life, whether you realize it or not. What the data doesn't account for is the people in our lives who love Jesus so that when all hope was lost, they were there to comfort us. What the data doesn't account for is that when the people of God act like the people of God, there is action behind their belief and it transforms life. According to the data, probably all of us could raise our hand and say, yeah, that's me. But let me tell you this, and please hear me, and I hope you get this, that despite your flaws, despite your past, despite what you've done or even what has been done to you, God loved you first. Whether you know it or not, or whether you believe it or not, God is working behind the scenes in your life for you to believe and to understand the gospel and the graciousness of Jesus Christ. But there's no point in believing the resurrection if we aren't going to believe that there was a point in the first place, that we need to be redeemed and restored from our sin. Number two, is that belief in the resurrection of Jesus means you trust the work of Jesus, not yourself. That big sin problem you and I all have is a garden issue. It's ultimately a pride problem that we think we know better than God, that we could do better, know better, live better, that if you believe and trust in yourself enough that you could arrive in a place that God has to love you. Our son is in his second year of t-ball, and he is a very, 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 very poor baseball player. Now, it's not his fault. He was born to two very short white parents, okay? It's just, it's just the reality of it, okay? We're, we're not holding it. He's a big nerd, but nerds run the world, so I'm cool with it. You know, it's, it'll balance out eventually. Hopefully, maybe, we'll see, whatever. We love him anyways, okay? Here's my point, is that our son, he will go to practice, he'll come home, and he'll come in and be like, Dad, guess what? I'm the fastest guy on my team. And I'll be like, no way! For real? He goes, yeah, we were doing laps and we were racing, and I won once, and I finished in last the other couple times, but I'm the fastest guy on my team. Bud, if you ain't first, you're last, okay? No, I don't tell him that. Now, it is my goal for this year to get my son to run the bases as fast as he can, like Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay, if you know who Sonic is, he puts his arms out, his head down, and he yells Sonic speed. I'm like, that's the one thing I want in life for the entire baseball season this year is just run the bases like Sonic the Hedgehog. Just come on, can you do this thing for me? 
And he will literally believe he is the fastest kid on his team even though he runs like a duck. <laughs> no matter how much you believe in yourself, it doesn't change some things. No matter how much you believe in yourself to be good, you can't be in God's eyes. You are not good enough. You are not strong enough, trustworthy enough to be your own savior. That's why Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave. That's why John says in chapter 20, verse 31, all of this was written that you might have name and believe in him. In Luke 24, on the road to Amazus, Jesus encounters two men trying to make sense of the resurrection, everything with it. And he says to them, all the prophets have written so that you may believe. Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you may be saved. No matter how good you think you are, you must trust in the work of Jesus Christ. But let's not forget that last aspect of the meaning of belief, the implication of action. And here's my final thought is belief in the resurrected Jesus means that new life starts now. That new life begins now. That it's not enough to just cognitively believe. That Jesus abandoned his life so that we could have life abundantly, but that only comes with him at the center. That a dead man walked out of a tomb so that you could have new life today and for eternity. Not so you could just check a box. Not that you can say, yep, I believe that. But so that you could have new life that transforms everything that you are. How you think, what you do, how you live. That is the point of our belief. The Apostle Paul puts it so good in Romans chapter 6 verse 8. He says this. He says, now... If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Let me just ask you this morning one simple question. Do you believe? Do you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God, the only way that your righteousness can be made permanent? How will you choose to define your life? Will you try to define your life on how well you love you? Will you try to define your life on how many uh, salary things that you earn? I don't even know what that even says. That doesn't make any sense, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Will you choose to, to, to define your life based on how much influence you have on social media? Will you choose to define your life by the letters at the end of your name? Will you choose to define your life whether or not you have letters in front of your name? I don't know. What will you choose to define your life? Because the world will say there's a whole lot. There's a smorgasbord of things that you can believe in to have purpose and meaning and hope and truth. But there is only one truth. There is only one belief that saves us for eternity. But that new life starts now. That the fundamental belief in following God is not, am I worthy? The fundamental belief in following God is, is Jesus. Do I believe that he took his final breath on a cross, went to a grave, rose three days later so that I may have eternal life? And that life begins now. Do you we're going to do something here this morning. We don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask um, a series of questions. But I'm going to ask everyone in this room to go ahead and close your eyes this morning. 
Go ahead and close your eyes if you would, just in your seat. And I'm going to ask just some questions about belief. And if it's true of you, there's going to be an invitation for you to stand. So let me start here. That at some point in your life, you were a skeptic. You doubted that God loved you, cared for you. You doubted that there even was a God. But through him working behind the scenes, you now believe that Jesus is real. If that is you, would you just stand to your feet? Every eye closed, just stand to your feet right where you are. If you believe that there are pains and hurts and stressors in life, however, you have found a peace that surpasses all understanding because you know that you are never alone by the grace and the power of Jesus, would you stand this morning? If you were here this morning and you would say, if someone asked me that question, do I believe in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Unequivocally, he is the son of the living God, my Lord and Savior. Would you stand this morning? Final question for us, though. I believe some of you are here this morning because you are going to express that belief through baptism. That you are going to confess publicly that I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I have died with Jesus, therefore I live with him. If that is you this morning, would you please stand? Go ahead and open your eyes. Belief is powerful, is it not? Belief transforms lives and families and communities. And so here's what I'm going to invite us to do next. As we continue to worship this morning, Aaron said it's also Baptism Sunday. There's no greater way in which we get to worship the resurrection of Jesus than people declaring that I have died with Christ when I go under that water and I rise up, it means I live with him. And so over the next couple songs that the team's gonna lead us in, some of you have come prepared to make that decision today. And there might be some of you where the spirit is saying, that's you. You need to make this choice. He's talking at you. He's talking with you. If that is you this morning, we have clothes, we have everything that you need, and we would love to celebrate baptism with you today. So we're going to collectively take the confession of faith, but after that, if you are ready to take that step of baptism, we're going to invite you to exit out of one of these two front doors here, and then there'll be someone back there to help you get ready. And as the rest of us continue to worship this morning, we get the opportunity to celebrate our resurrected Savior this morning. So let's partake in the great confession together. Repeat after me that I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and my Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning making that decision to be baptized, would you go ahead and make your way forward, make your way out through the access. Let's round of applause for all of those making that choice today as the rest of us continue to worship our resurrected Savior.